Merry Christmas, everybody. Can't believe it's two weeks away. I, I know, you know, 2021 seemed to drag on forever. We thought 2020 was long. And then 2021 drags on. And then, yeah, here it is at the very end, and Christmas is two weeks away. I cannot hardly believe it. I want to amplify what Michael said earlier. Be thinking now about whom you would invite to join you for the Christmas Eve event or maybe even next Sunday if you're going to be able to be here. Be thinking about who you might ask to come with you. Individuals do indicate that they would uh, willingly attend a church. People who don't go to church indicate they would go if somebody would ask them. So be thinking about who that might be in your life. I'm going to ask you this morning to go to uh, the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2. If you have a hard copy or electronic copy of the Bible with you, or maybe you see one of the copies in the seat in front of you, underneath that seat, you can grab one of those copies. That might help you. Um, We're also going to be in the book of Isaiah and probably in the book of 2 Kings chapter 16. Sounds like it's going to be really long, doesn't it? Yeah, okay, suck it up because it is, all right? (laughs) And you came back this week after what I did to you last week, so how good for you. It's also going to feel a little disjointed this morning, and here's why. Um, We're going to be looking at Simeon's prophecy in Luke chapter 2, and I have to do it in two parts, so this weekend and next weekend, otherwise you'd be here till like 2 o'clock. I'm only going to keep you to 1 o'clock today, so you're really, (laughs) you think I'm joking, right? No, I am. Um, I, I last service was out like 10 or 15 minutes after normal, so, you know, 12.15 today. If not, I'll give you back your money. Okay. Um, I would like to pray with you. I would like to pray with you for the people in Tennessee and in Kentucky and Arkansas and all that loss of life that happened in the last couple of days. Are, are they not on your heart? They're on mine. A lot of churches were destroyed. A lot of houses wiped off the map. The devastation is just amazing. And so we should be praying for them, um, both for the believers and non-believers. Let's be praying that God would meet their needs and that they would find comfort. Scripture says, God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. So we want to pray that God's purposes will be accomplished out of what happened in the way of incredible tragedy. Let's pray about that and also for what we're about to look at, and then we'll dive into it. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, we join our hearts together, everybody who's watching virtually right now and everybody who's joined together in this auditorium, for the purpose of knowing you better, understanding your purposes and your ways, and even when they're confusing to us, and especially when there's tragedy and we can't make sense of it. So, Father, we ask that for what you're going to accomplish out of what happened, that you would do your work, that your purposes would be accomplished that the kingdom would go forward and that Jesus would be glorified. We know, Father, that these tragedies, these storms were unanticipated. Many were caught off guard and are left now homeless and wondering how they can put the pieces back together. Father, I pray that Americans would rise up and help them to meet their needs and that you would work through us as believers in Christ to earnestly lift them up to you, that you would accomplish your purposes in each person's life for the purposes of those who don't yet know you, God, that you would use these circumstances to draw people into relationship with you. I pray, Father, for believers especially, that you would strengthen them. Strengthen us now, Father, as we look at your word, as we look at these things that were written in ancient days, that you would use them to equip us and prepare us how to celebrate even better for Christmas. 
God, I pray these things in the matchless name of our soon coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Last week, we began a journey, and we were looking at the journey towards Bethlehem, the journey towards Christmas through the eyes of the Magi. And we spent some time looking at the wise men and who they were and how they fit into the story. But the bigger purpose in that was to understand more fully how we worship, the concept of worship. And I said at the time, we worship well what we know well. If you were here, you might have heard me use the illustration of football games or shopping. We, we worship really well. We celebrate really well the things that we know well. Worshiping what you know is not hard it just requires dedication, a dedication of effort and energy. I contend that knowing biblical prophecy actually plays a huge role in your capacity to fully worship. Prophecy in its most basic form, if you're new to church, is, is this very simple concept. God promises certain things. He communicates those things that he promises either through his spoken word himself or to individuals who write those things down, and he fulfills them. That's what prophecy is all about. So prophecy in its most basic form is God promises certain things will unfold, and then he communicates it. And that communication is an expectation of God's activity. Uh, in regard to prophecy, God is very precise in what he promises. I want you to see that especially this morning. Like this term, a virgin will be with child. That's a very specific statement. And it would cause individuals likely to step back and say, what? How does that even work biologically? How can a virgin be with child? Yet that's what God committed through a prophecy. Here is why God can be very specific in his prophecies because he knows the end from the beginning. He sees the full scope. He knows all that's involved. Let me show you an example of a New Testament prophecy, and it'll help you assemble what I'm talking about. Look with me on the screen at Luke chapter 1, verse 31, and it starts this way. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Now stop right there for a moment. That's the first part of the prophecy, and that's a very near prophecy. It's in the immediate future. It's not a distant prophecy. It's going to happen within a period of nine months' time. But then there's a second component to this same verse, this passage, which is a distant prophecy. It says in verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end." And you can see in that very familiar Christmas passage, there's a first part and there's a second part. The first part is immediate. We recognize that as the conversation angel, the angel had with Mary, and it's full of very specific phrases with meaning like no other. And she's shocked when the angel tells her these things. Like, what? How could this be? I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. How could this work? You can see her shock, and God's very specific about what he's promising. But the angel, you remember the response the angel had, Mary, all things are possible with God. I hope you believe that this morning, church. All things are possible with God, right? That, that's the commitment that God makes. There's nothing that's impossible with him. But the second part of the prophecy, verse 32 and verse 33, 
Even a dropout of high school in Israel would have understood what that meant. It's like the ABCs of Israel because it was linked with a really, really old, very famous prophecy. Let me show you that on the screen, 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And that's God making a commitment to King David, but not to David personally that David's going to live forever because we know David died. So it can't be about David personally, but yet he's saying your throne, your kingdom is going to go on and on and on. So obviously this is talking about a future coming king, the one who had the right to rule. Now, even though God is very specific in his prophecies, individuals are greatly confused. These things confused people because they didn't have what you have. They had a very limited view. They didn't have the full picture. However, you this morning, you have the benefit of a much more complete picture today with the pieces of the puzzle connected. I want to show you this morning, like we did last week, how you can connect the pieces of the Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament prophecies, and you can know that Jesus is actually the true fulfillment of all of God's promises. But to get there... I have to take you back to 2 Kings, to chapter 16, to the time of about 700 B.C. Then there's a king on the throne, and his name is Ahaz. Let me put this verse up on the screen for you. And this guy's pretty wicked. I'll amplify that in just a second for you. It says this, 2 Kings 16.2, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. Now, it's not talking about David being his immediate biological dad. It's talking about the fact that David is his great-great-grandpappy. He's in the line of David. But he didn't do the kind of things that King David did. He was a, a very wicked dude. Actually, Ahaz was rotten to the core. He's a 20-something, and he's decided and taken upon himself to shut the doors to the temple. Imagine this morning if somebody showed up before you ever got here and put chains on the doors so that you couldn't come in this morning. That's what Ahaz did. He bolted the doors shut. They nailed them shut. He barred the doors of the temple and he wouldn't let anybody go in. He left the temple to rot. His desire was that the true worship of God would be totally extinguished. And when true worship is eliminated, Satan very quickly brings in counterfeit. He brings in false worship. Well, Ahaz introduced false worship, worship of God, small g, Molech, the god of the Ammonites. And Ammonite god Molech, M-O-L-E-C-H, was very savage. In the way that they worshiped Molech was absolutely brutal. And Ahaz followed in that line of the Ammonites. He constructed a statue made of steel. And this steel statue was hollow at its core. And it was quite large. And it was built in the form of a human, but with a godlike head and a mechanical system in which the mouth opened and closed on it. And in the belly where it was hollow was actually a cauldron, a fireplace. And they heated that thing up to the point where this entire metal body would glow orange and you could see it from a great distance. And when the mouth was opened mechanically on that statue, they would make human sacrifices. 
not just human sacrifices, children, not just children, babies. Ahaz did that with his own son and with the children of Israel, which caused God to say, you've done things that have never entered into my mind, nor did I ever ask you to do those kind of things. This is the condition of Israel in 700 BC. And Isaiah is a prophet at this time. And he finds himself sitting on the rubble pile of what once was a great nation dedicated to God, looking at the waste of what his government had led them into. Now, a really abrupt shift takes place in the narrative of the story of this setting at this time. Bursting forth from the darkness and the gloom that Ahaz has introduced is Isaiah chapter 9. You heard Bradley just read that a few minutes ago during worship time. In Isaiah chapter 9, there's a promise that is given by God, a prophecy, a prophecy of encouragement. Isaiah is looking forward in time. God reveals to him what's going to happen, and he writes Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 9. Let me show you Isaiah 9 verse 1 on the screen. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. The her, in this case, is the nation. The nation that's grieving over what has become of them. Keep going with me. Verse 2. The people who walk in darkness, and it's talking about spiritual darkness here. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And then Isaiah sees this all in one continuous sweeping picture as God reveals to him what's going to happen. Look with me now at verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And Isaiah seeing this in one continuous image from birth to the reigning of the king who will set up a different government than what he's used to, a government that has totally abandoned God. Isaiah sees in the future a government that will be set up to honor God, and there will be this righteous one who sits on the throne. But just like the other prophets during the time of the Old Testament and some in the New Testament, as they looked at these things, they didn't know how to put the pieces together. Isaiah is not aware of the vast amount of time in between the prophecy and when these things would occur. Now, interestingly, in the New Testament, Peter, the apostle of Jesus, he writes about this very same reality, that they didn't know when these things would happen. Look with me on the screen at 1 Peter 1.10. As to this salvation, meaning what you have this morning in Jesus, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Pause right there. They've spoken things that God revealed to them, but they don't know when it's going to happen. And so they're making searches and, and inquiries, trying to figure out, how does this all work? Verse 11, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 
It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. Check this. But you. They were not serving themselves, but you and future generations, you living in 2021. They were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. See, if you go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah has no hint of the date, but he can link the prophecies. He can link what he wrote in Isaiah 7, a virgin will be with child. And he can link that with chapter 9 that he's just written. And we're told that this one will be a righteous ruler in the line of David. So the initial announcement that comes out is that there's going to be a child born, and that one will be born of a virgin. And what it really accentuates is the humanness of this one, but also that this one's going to be from God, because he said, God will give a son. A son will be given to us, and it emphasizes this is an action of God, meaning this, it's not coincidental. If you choose to give this morning to the church, when you put an offering in the box, or maybe you brought a coat with you for the coat drive, you chose to do that intentionally, meaning it wasn't an accident, it wasn't a coincidence, it was a decision on your part. That's the same concept behind God giving us a son. We give intentionally. God gave Jesus intentionally. Here's the implication. This human child that will be born of a virgin is a God-given son gift. That son will be given as God's gift to us, which is very consistent with the New Testament, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave us this gift. And also in 1 John 4.9, God has sent his only begotten son into the world. Yet at the same time, it's implying that there's some deity here because this something, this one that God gives, he gives of himself. Stay with me on this concept. We've been talking about this in E2E. Our study in eternity to eternity is that Jesus has always been from before time. He existed before the creation of the world. He's existed since eternity past. And we saw that in Philippians, Philippians 2, verse 6, although he existed in the form of God, meaning past tense, he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So let's assemble the pieces that Isaiah understood so we can get to Simeon. Isaiah knew, although this one would be physically born of a human mother, he also knew this one already is. This is a gift of God. God the Son became Jesus the man, taking the form of a man. Now, we're going to amplify all this by looking over the shoulder of Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke records this very short story, and he pens a record of Jesus' very early days on earth. And here's the setting. Mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, are on their way to Jerusalem, and they're taking Jesus with them. And they're very specifically going to carry out a function, a dedication of a child. But before we get to that, Luke relays to us some details that are really consistent with life in the first century. Look with me on the screen at Luke 2.21, or maybe if you have your Bible open. Verse 21 says, And when eight days had passed, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, 
the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. It's very likely that this takes place in Bethlehem. Mary's only eight days past delivery. Women wouldn't be traveling very far. And typically, the dedication of the circumcision would take place in the local synagogue, meaning the synagogue right in Bethlehem. So very likely, this part that we just read here, that took place, and the naming of the baby, it took place right in Bethlehem. Now, so important was the circumcision of a baby that it was actually carried out even on Shabbat, even on the Sabbath day. And all males in the Mediterranean area, whether they were Jewish or not, were circumcised. Romans circumcised males on the ninth day. Greeks circumcised on the seventh day. And the Jews, they did it on the eighth day. Now, as part of that process, we're also told that there's a naming that took place. We're told that his name was called Jesus. Parents would name the children, specifically the dad. Fathers would choose the name, but this one's already been given a name by the angel Gabriel, according to what Luke has written here. We know him as Jesus. That's the anglicized or the English version of the Greek name, Iesus. But they would have called him Yeshua. That would be his Hebrew name. Now, Yeshua is a really interesting combination. When we hear that, we automatically begin thinking of Joshua. And Joshua's name is a derivative of that. If you have the name Joshua, your name is very close to Yeshua or Jesus in the Hebrew language. But here's what Yeshua is. It's a combination of the name of God, Yahweh, and the noun deliverer or salvation. When you put the two together, you have Yahshua, which means salvation or deliverance is of God. I put this together, you're going to see it on the screen, just as a way to help you work through this. And many of you know this, but I just wanted to familiarize you with it again. Look with me at this. Jesus is his human name. And in Greek, we know it as Jesus or Iesus. English, we know it as Jesus specifically. Christ is not his second name. It's his title. Christ is equal to Messiah or Mashiach. And many times you hear people say Jesus Christ, even in swearing terms, as though that's his second name. But that's not his second name. It's actually his title. And then thirdly, we have Emmanuel. Now, that describes who he is or what he is. But very interestingly, whenever you look at Jesus in the New Testament and the demons are confronting him, they confront him with the exact same name that the angels, the holy unfallen angels, confront him with, Son of God. So we have Jesus, we have Christ, we have Emmanuel, and we have Son of God. Now we can dive into the depth of this story. Look with me at the next verse, verse 22. And when the days for their purification, which was 40 days, by the way, a whole month plus 10 more days has gone by. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were complete, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, Dr. Luke is just describing a ceremony here, and he says they're going up to Jerusalem. If you have your Bible open, you might even want to circle the word up right there, and this is a very interesting phrase that he's used, not because of its geographical location. 
Bethlehem is actually geographically higher up in altitude than Jerusalem. But every time the ancients spoke of going to Jerusalem, they always spoke of going up to Jerusalem because to them, no place on earth was spiritually higher than Jerusalem. And so they always spoke of going up to Jerusalem. And we find in verse 22, their purpose is to present Jesus to the Lord God. There's a dedication ceremony that's about to go on. They're going to present Jesus, but then they're going to buy him back. And I need to explain to you what's going on here so that you understand it. Let me present this uh, verse to you from the Old Testament, Numbers 18, and you'll see some background for this. Numbers 18, verse 15. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem. As to the redemption price from a month old, you shall redeem them by your valuation, five shekels in silver. Here's what's going on. God announced in the Old Testament that every firstborn male that was born from a family would belong to him for the priesthood. But he had named the Levites as the priests of Israel. And so he allowed this caveat for individuals to buy back their firstborn. And that's what you see going on here with the five shekels of silver. So we've got this ceremony going on and find that God has a ransom of five shekels of silver, which, by the way, would be $100 today of pure silver. Now, church, does God need money? No, he doesn't need it. God does, he owns everything. He has everything. God doesn't need money. Why is he giving them a ransom price? Well, because it's a reminder. That one belongs to me. That's mine. I, I, I owned him first. I'll let you have him back. But that one belongs to me. Now, if the parents followed tradition, typically Mary and Joseph would be dressed in pure white clothing if they could afford it. Not everyone could, and they were very poor, so they may not have. And they would be ascending the steps. And mind you, they're on this spiritual journey. They've left Bethlehem. They've come to Jerusalem. And they're wearing the clothing if they're carrying this tradition. And they're carrying the child with them. And the talk is not of going to the temple, but ascending to the presence of God. And David even wrote a psalm of ascent in the book of Psalms that would talk about the heart being gladder and gladder and gladder. The higher and higher they climbed up the steps. So we have this picture in our mind of Mary and Joseph carrying the baby Jesus and ascending the steps. And we're told in verse 24 there's something else going on and to offer a pair of turtle doves. Now, that's not the offering expected, but it's acceptable. Many would come into that setting and offer a lamb for the purification. But if you're really, really dirt poor, like street poor, you could offer two turtle doves. They'd cost you a dime in the marketplace. And you, you could buy two turtle doves and present them as an offering for your purification. So Luke set the background. He said, here's all the dynamics going on. And inserted right into the middle of this is this dynamic, absolutely fascinating. Into the picture comes Simeon. Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So he's like Isaiah. He's living in the New Testament time, 
But he's looking forward. Specifically, he's looking for the consolation of Israel. He's looking for some degree of comfort. Now, we saw last week in Matthew chapter 2 when we were looking at the Magi that King Herod was completely opposed to the newborn king. And we saw that the priests and the Sadducees and the scribes, in their case, they were just ignoring the newborn king. Even though they could quote Scripture, even though they could quote Micah 5, they wouldn't obey it. Jesus is only nine miles away. They wouldn't go see him. Why do I bring that detail out? For this reason. It's very significant what we're seeing here. Both in Simeon's case and in Herod's case and the scribes and the Sadducees' case and the Pharisees, messianic expectations were running very, very high in the early part of the first century. They could put the pieces together. They're looking at the prophecies, especially what Daniel wrote about the building of Nehemiah's wall. And from that period of time, you're going to look at it next week, how to count the actual years to the point in which Jesus was born. So the consummation of the ages is at hand. We'll circle back to that next week. But we're told there's this man in Jerusalem, and his name is Simeon. And extra-biblical sources say he was probably more than 100 years of age. And extra-biblical sources also tell us other things about this guy we'll get into in just a moment. This man, we're told, is righteous, and he's devout, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. So we've got this Old Testament saint, because he's alive before Jesus has died on the cross, and he's looking forward in time, and he has this intense desire for the promise of God, the prophecy, to be fulfilled. So he's not like the leadership of his nation. He's waiting, and he's watching, and he's believing that he can believe God and take God at his word. So Luke uses this very deliberate term here, paraclesis. It's in your notes this morning, and you see it on the screen. He's waiting for the paraclesis of Israel. Look at the definition closely. If you grew up in church or maybe you've been in church for any length of time, you might recognize the word paraclete. Paraclete is the term that's used for the Holy Spirit. We're told that the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside and actually indwells us. Paraclesis is a word very much a derivative of that. It's borrowed from the judicial system, from the court systems of that time. And it's brought over into the book of Luke to describe what's going on here in Luke chapter 2. We're told they're looking for the comforter. Now, this legal term, it's used in a judicial sense, is actually talking about someone who would serve as a defense attorney. If you've ever had to hire a defense attorney before, you know that that's the one who represents you in the courtroom and will argue your case. We're told that's exactly who Jesus is before the Father on our behalf. That he bought us with a ransom, he paid the price, and he's before the Father interceding on our behalf. He's the defender. That's what Simeon's looking for. He's living under the boot of Rome, just like Isaiah was living under wicked King Ahaz. He knows things are not going the way that they're supposed to go. And he's waiting and he's watching. And a very common prayer at this period of time in the first century was this. May I live to see the consolation of Israel, the defender, the one who will set things right. 
No wonder Luke gives us this piece of information in verse 26. Watch. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. So the very thing he's been pleading for before God, God is granting to him. Now, external sources also speak of Simeon being very irritated and troubled in his spirit by the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, that a virgin will be with child. Well, that doesn't surprise me because many people are troubled by that. Even today, people try and figure out, how can a virgin have a child? Well, at that time, it was alive and well in their world that they were troubled by that prophecy. So it's no exception that Simeon would be troubled by that. And we're told, with that on his mind, he came into the temple. So he's not already there. He's somewhere out in Jerusalem doing whatever somebody does who's 100 years plus of age. And God interrupts him and makes it clear to him, Simeon, stop what you're doing. This is the moment. Go. It's time. Verse 27, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, and he took him into his arms and blessed God. It's an incredibly touching scene that's being carried out here. Mary and Joseph, once again, are playing a role in God's very perfect timing. They're carrying out the custom of the ritual of the law, the ritual of redemption of the firstborn. They're doing all the things they're supposed to do. And then Simeon moves into the temple courts because the Holy Spirit has prompted him. And he sweeps over to Mary and scoops up her baby and takes it out of her arms. Moms, I don't know what your response has been when people try and take your baby out of your arms, but I can tell you it's not always good. Some, some people would be very resistant to that. And this period of time, you know, you've got a pretty aged man. And he walks over and just scoops that baby up, and then he begins praising God. He sees the child scoops up the child and holds Jesus close to his chest, how did Simeon know? What did he know? If you understand the picture of what he knew, the larger picture, it will have a big impact on your Christmas in the next two weeks. See, there's a weight resting on Simeon. There's a weight of knowledge. He knows God's word, and he believes the God of the prophecies. What had God revealed to him? Well, Mary and Joseph, they knew part of the picture. And the shepherds, they knew part of the picture. And, and the house of Zacharias, they knew part of the picture. And, and the people living in Bethlehem, they had bits and pieces. But deep in Simeon's praise is this phrase, he blessed God, and it has great significance. Here's what I'm constructing in my mind as I read this. You see this elderly man enter into the setting, and he begins looking around. What's he looking for? By this age, he's been to the temple thousands of times in his very long life. Is he looking for an adult? Is he looking for a teenager? Is he looking for an infant? Well, what you have to do is you have to look at the promises of God and go back to the very first promise of God. The very first prophecy in the Bible is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Let me take you there. 
And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. It's the very first prophecy. Creation has taken place. The fall of man has been committed. And this promise comes within the context of the fall. God has shown up in the garden. Adam and Eve have rebelled against him. And God has before him Satan, Adam, and Eve. Satan in the form of the serpent, we're told. And God pronounces judgment and prophecy at the same time. Look with me at verse 15. Between your offspring and hers, there will be enmity and he will crush your head. What is the offspring? You have a Hebrew word in your notes this morning, and it's the word zarah. It actually means the seed, the posterity, from the seed of the woman. So this passage states that the one coming will be from the descent, the genealogy of a woman, not a man. And this should cause immediate attention for any prophet looking at this period of time, trying to inquire and understand this period of time. What is he talking about? It instantly gets their attention, not just because it's announced by God himself, but because it runs contrary to the biblical norm. Genealogies are always traced through the male line, never through the female line. Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Solomon, the son of David. You see it all the way through the Bible. You see it in the book of Matthew. It's always traced through the male line. But this genealogy, this one is going to be from a woman. Legal descent and tribal identity always traced through the lines of males. That this one will be traced through a woman tells us there's something very, very different about the circumstances. Something extraordinary is about to take place in his ancestral line, it's going to happen through his mother, not his father. And there's no explanation given until Isaiah chapter 7. When Isaiah is sitting on the rubble pile of what was once a great nation, and he writes, a virgin will be with child. Look with me at Isaiah 7:14. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. God's going to be with us? The word virgin that's used here in the Hebrew language is alma, and it can mean maiden or very young or virgin in the combination of Mary. It's all three. She's very young maiden. Many people think she's probably 14, 15 years of age, maybe 16. And something's going to happen that has never happened before in the history of the world or since there's going to be a sign for you. A virgin will be with child. That's why Paul wrote about this so emphatically in Galatians chapter 4. Look with me on the screen at Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That's a really unusual thing for a Hebrew of Hebrews to write, for a Jew of Jews, not of a man, but of a woman. God's covenant promise, God's prophecy was that he would destroy the destroyer, that Satan would be crushed, that the activity of Satan in your life causing you to sin will not be the reason you go to hell if God destroys the destroyer in bringing salvation. 
Satan would be crushed, but God went on to say, you're going to bruise his heel, meaning the bruising that took place on the cross, but he's going to crush your head and he will destroy you. So the entire Old Testament, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, keeps pointing forward to the promise, to the arrival of this one who could actually accomplish this. See, God is very precise because he can see the end from the beginning. Here's just three pieces, pieces that actually some of the prophets understood. They could put the pieces together. Here's part of it. Micah 5.2. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. 400 years before Jesus was born, Micah wrote that. That when that one comes, he will be born in Bethlehem. See, it's not by accident. It's not coincidental. It's on purpose that Joseph is in Bethlehem. Watch this, Luke 2, 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And I find this fascinating for this reason. Caesar Augustus is on a rampage, and he's taken a census, and he wants to count all the land because he wants to increase taxes. So God's working through governments to cause people to be in the right location at the right time on his calendar, but he's using governments to arrange it. When there's things going on in your world, you can't make sense of it. Know that God is behind the scenes. He's working a plan, and God's working a plan here to get Joseph in Bethlehem at the time he's supposed to be there. Here's the second one, that this one who will rule is going to come from the tribe of Judah. Look at the prophecy, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. In this case, Judah is a person. He's one of the sons of Jacob. And the prophecy was that there will be one coming from his line who will be a king. The scepter will not depart from Judah. And so we find this in the New Testament in Hebrews 7.14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And that's why he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Here's the third one. Third and last. Prophecy of the massacre of the innocents. The massacre of the children. The babies that were killed. 600 years before it happened. This was written in Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. I had people approach me after the first service saying, what, what, what is going on there with Rachel weeping for her children? Rachel is the wife of Jacob. The children are the descendants of Jacob. And they're Ramah, Rachel's from Bethlehem. That's Ramah, the region. And so the ancestors, the descendants of the ancestors, they find themselves in this place where they're weeping And they'll refuse to be comforted because their children are no more. And Matthew 2.16 bears this out. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined from the Magi. See, God is very precise because he can see the end from the beginning. Now back to Simeon to finish this out. 
he begins this beautiful song of praise that we're going to finish next week, but I want you to see his song. Verse 29. This is Simeon speaking and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. Remember, he's holding the baby at this time. And he sees the child in front of him. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. It's a really beautiful hymn. And tradition tells us it was preserved by Mary, and Mary handed it on to Luke, and Luke wrote down what you have before you today that you are reading. Michael tells me that in his church when he was a child, this song was used. It was sung as a hymn by individuals as they would go out during Christmas time. It was used constantly in the church for centuries because it begins with a statement by Simeon. The word none is used here, which means now, according to your word. He's referring back to verse 26 where it says it had been revealed to him that he would not die until he sees the Mashiach. But now Simeon's got this profound insight. He sees it happening in his own lifetime. Yet in these very pregnant statements, he's got the story of the future. Hear this. Simeon's song is a missionary hymn. It is highly, highly unusual for a Jew to be standing in the temple and say, I have seen your salvation, a light to the Gentiles. He's Jewish. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they taught people to discard even the Samaritans, let alone the Gentiles. But this guy's standing in the temple saying, I've seen your light. I've seen what you're about to do. You have prepared this in the presence of all peoples. See what Simeon sees? He sees this going out to the whole world, that everyone can be saved through the name of Jesus Christ. That's why Luke chapter 2, when the angel shows up and talks to Mary and Joseph and says, this will be for all the peoples. And then they repeat it to the shepherds on the hillside that Jesus is available regardless of your past, regardless of the sin you walked in the door with this morning, that Jesus is available to forgive you of your sin and make you right with God, and it's available to everybody on the face of this planet. If you agree with that, say amen. It's available to everyone. If they would only receive it, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He said that the lost were shrouded in darkness. Isaiah wrote about that, that to be without God is to be enveloped in this thick, dark mist. But Isaiah looked for it in time and said, when that one comes, he's going to swallow up that darkness. Look with me on the screen. Isaiah 25, 7, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all the peoples, even the veil, which is stretched over all the nations. Well, that's an exact match for what we're told happened to you when you received Jesus Christ. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians. Look with me at what was taken from you. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. If you're in Jesus this morning, you're no longer living in darkness. Say amen if you agree with that. You don't sound convinced. Let's try that again. If you're in Jesus, that veil of darkness is taken away from you. That sounds better. All right. Way to be enthusiastic about what Jesus did for you. You just sang about him in praise and worship. He brought this for you. And Simeon, 2,000 years ago, is saying, this is what's going to happen. 
I can see this coming. This old man knows much about God's plans. So verse 28 says, he took him into his arms. He sees God's word. He knows God's word. And he believes the God of the word. So deep in his praise is this great significance. This one, this Yeshua, is not just for the salvation of Israel. It's for the entire planet. And so Dr. Luke writes, Mary and Joseph were shocked. They couldn't believe what was going on in front of them. Look with me at this. Luke 2, verse 33, and his father and mother were amazed at all the things that were being said about him. The word that's actually used there is thumazo, and it means to wonder again and again and again and again, like, what? Why would this be such a surprise to them? Mary's had all this information given to her from the angel. Joseph has had all this information from the angels. The shepherds brought them information from the field. Why would they be so surprised here? Because this is the first time that they've been together to hear about the destiny of Jesus. They've been told he's Emmanuel, God with us. They've been told who he is and what he is, but they've not comprehended to this point the scope that the entire planet will be saved if only they will believe. Next week, Simeon's going to transfer from praising God into prophesying. And here's just a glimpse of that before I send you out the door. Luke 2, verse 34. This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many. Verse 35. To the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Prophecy reveals purpose. Jesus is barely a month old and we're already told He's going to be the dividing line. In all of human history, there's one dividing line that determines eternal destiny, and it's Jesus. And if you think Jesus is not the dividing line, try walking into a Christmas party in the next two weeks and just ask everybody, what do you think about Jesus? Right? What do you think is going to happen? You walk into a party that's dead and there's nothing going on, just bring up the question of Jesus. So who do you think Jesus is? I promise you, it will ignite a conversation because he's the dividing line. What have we seen this morning? God's timing is always perfect. God's promises will be fulfilled. God's prophecy is very precise because he sees the end from the beginning. Let me take it one step further for application for you to carry out to the car with you. Think about Simeon. Do you think when that day started that Simeon knew what he would be facing that day? He enters the temple, and God has waiting for him the greatest moment of his life. After he sees this, he can die. Most people would say they would like that kind of God activity in their life. I'd take that. I'll sign up for that. See, this story is also about God inviting us to join him in his activity. He invites us to join him in his work. When God is leading you, that's the moment that you respond. Here's a way to know that it's God leading you in your life. When it's something typically you wouldn't do on your own initiative. 
See, God causes us to do things that are consistent with his character. I can always make excuses for things I don't want to do. I can come up with reasons to not do them. But God brings opportunities along. Here's what I see in Simeon. He's in this place where God can use him. You know what that requires for you this morning? It requires a willingness to be interrupted in your very busy life. God brings opportunities, but our schedules, our relationships, our finances, lots of things get in the way, and we use those as excuses. My encouragement to you is slow down. See if that thing interrupting your life is a God moment, a God opportunity. We often forget that God, in spite of all of our flaws, invites us to join him. So begin by asking this morning, what do I need to surrender to God? Relationships? Schedule? That thing I think I have to get to? That's for people who are already believers. If you happen to find yourself in the auditorium this morning, or maybe you're watching online right now, and, and you're not yet convinced, you're not yet a believer, I want you to see the real reason Jesus came. Somebody asked you this year about what's Christmas all about? Here's your response to them. Just look with me at this verse. Here's the reality of Christmas. 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen? That's why he came. That's the Christmas story compressed into a nutshell. That's why he's here. I'm here to tell you, you can receive the forgiveness of Jesus right now. You can receive forgiveness of your sins and begin a relationship with God. What you have to do is believe, and it's your decision. There's nobody in the parking lot waiting to tackle you this morning. It's your decision to believe, and it's the most important decision you will ever make. And I promise you, if you're expecting God to do something more, he's already done it all. What he's asking you to do is believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and he's offering you eternal life. I'm gonna pray for you right now. I'm gonna pray for all of us that we would allow these things of God to really settle into our heart and apply them to our life this week. If you're looking to connect, I'll be down in front after the service is done. I'd I'd love to talk to you if we haven't met yet, but right now let's pray together. Father, I thank you for revealed truth and how you use your word and cause it to come alive. And regardless of the things that are on our mind right now and the temptation to reach for our car keys or look and see what time it is on our phone, cause us to stop and consider what you've shown us this morning. That you have a purpose and a plan for this planet and you're accomplishing your purposes and you invite us to join you. Thank you for the profound reality of that. God, I thank you for moving Luke to write these things down and causing it to come alive this morning in December. Use it in our life now and send us out the door with your blessing for having spent the time in studying your word. We pray for these things in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.